1: Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 185 The Mount Hope Bay Raids. For the past few weeks, I've been focusing on Philadelphia where the British occupation has been winding down. As the British prepared for the 1778 spring fighting season, they conducted a number of raids around Philadelphia. Today, though, I want to explore a few other small raids in New England, which took place around the same time. This will also give me an opportunity to cover the British occupation of Newport, Rhode Island. The British Army held Newport for nearly three years, You may recall from back in Episode 119 that the British landed an army at Newport, Rhode Island for the purpose of setting up a saltwater port for the fleet. General Henry Clinton captured Aquidneck Island, where Newport is located, and did little else before leaving for London. His second-in-command, Lord Percy, also stuck around only for a very short time, and after that he also left for London that left Major General Richard Prescott in command. Now, you may recall from episode 147 that local patriots kidnapped General Prescott from his home on the island and later traded him for Continental Major General Charles Lee. So by the spring of 1778, Prescott had been exchanged and had returned to Newport. However, the more senior Major General Robert Piggott who had been sent to take command after Prescott's kidnapping, remained in command of the British Army at Newport. General Robert Piggott has been a big part of the war since the beginning, however, I don't think I've mentioned much about his background up until now, so I will take a moment to do that. Piggott's family is a bit unusual for a top British officer. His family is French. Robert's grandfather migrated to England likely to escape the increasing persecution of Protestant Huguenots in Catholic France. France had tolerated Protestants for several decades when King Henry IV issued the Edict of Nantes in the late 1500s. Henry IV had been a Protestant himself, but converted to Catholicism for the purely political reason of securing the crown of France. He famously said at the time, Paris is worth a mass. After Henry's death, France, under Henry's son, Louis Thirteenth, grew increasingly hostile towards its Protestant population. Internal Huguenot rebellions led to inevitable crackdowns and many fleeing the country. Henry's grandson, Louis XIV, eventually revoked the Edict of Dantes entirely in 1685, forcing French Protestants, pretty much with the choice of either converting to Catholicism or leaving the country. Most chose the latter. For them, Paris was not worth the mass. So at some point in the 1600s, Piggott's grandfather moved the family to England, settling in Shropshire, near the Welsh border. Piggott's father, Richard Piggott, moved to London and settled in Westminster. Although he was without title, he was rather wealthy and well-connected. His wife became a lady's maid to Queen Caroline, wife of George II. The couple had three sons and a daughter, Robert being the second son, meaning that he was not in line to inherit the family wealth. So, as was common practice at the time, Dad bought Robert a commission in the army. Bigot served in the War of Austrian Succession. It's not clear what he did during the Seven Years' War. However, he started out as a captain, and by the time the war was over, he had risen to lieutenant colonel. During the same time, Piggott won election in Parliament. Men from good families often went to Parliament to help with their advancement in the army. Pigot was not known for taking any controversial positions or even speaking very much on the Commons floor. He seemed to use his position to ingratiate himself with the Crown and the Ministry. Robert's older brother, George Pigot had gone to work for the East India Company as a young man and by the 1750s had served as the governor and commander-in-chief of Madras. George returned to England, where he purchased a large estate worth over a £100,000 sterling, which was a considerable fortune at the time. By comparison, consider that the king ran the entire British government for £800,000 annually. George also obtained a baronetcy, which greatly improved the family's standing in British society. After Robert served for a few years in Parliament, he received a commission as Warden of the Mint. This was one of those honorary jobs that did not require much work, but paid pretty well. It was a reward from the king given to politically loyal officials. When things started to heat up in America, Robert received a promotion to Brigadier General and shipped out to Boston in 1774. He remained in Boston during Lexington and Concord, but commanded a division at Bunker Hill, and he was one of the few officers to survive that battle unscathed, despite being recognized for conspicuous bravery during the assaults on the American position. Piggott then moved with the army, first to Halifax, and then to the invasion of New York. He commanded General Howe's 2nd Brigade at the Battle of Long Island in 1776. After that, he remained in New York until after the Americans kidnapped Major General Prescott. The year 1777 was a notable one for Piggott. His older brother George died, and although George had several children, they were illegitimate. As a result, Robert and his brother Hugh, who was a naval officer, and their sister inherited the family fortune. As Robert was the next oldest, he also inherited George's baronetcy. That same year, he took command of the Rhode Island occupation at Newport, as I said, after General Prescott's kidnapping. Also that same year, Piggott received a promotion to Major General. Now, the question for me was how Piggott retained command of Rhode Island after the return of Major General Prescott. Remember, Prescott had been kidnapped to be exchanged for Major General Charles Lee. If Piggott just got promoted to Major General, how did he outrank Major General Prescott? Well, it turns out Prescott was not a real Major General at the time of his kidnapping. He was a Major General in America. He got his full promotion to Major General right after Piggott, so Piggott was the more senior. The size of the British Army in Newport is not well recorded. Sir Henry Clinton had initially captured Newport with an army of six or 7,000 British and Hessian soldiers. But almost immediately afterward, General Howe began transferring much of the army back to his command in New York. That was one of the reasons that Clinton and Lord Percy abandoned that command in early 1777. My best guess is that by early 1778, the occupation had dwindled down to between two and 3,000 soldiers. Given the size of the garrison, the British did not attempt to occupy more of Rhode Island beyond Aquidneck Island, where Newport is located. The water around the island created a natural defensive barrier for the British and was an impediment to taking and holding more territory on the mainland. Other than the kidnapping in the summer of 1777, the British occupation at Newport had remained relatively quiet. The British held Aquedneck Island. The British Navy had spent the prior two winters there, keeping the bulk of the Continental Army bottled up and using Newport as a base to repair ships and for other naval missions. The naval presence also discouraged any large-scale Patriot assaults on the island. For the most part, the British remained on Aquidneck Island and the waters just around it, while the Patriots kept a watch on them from the mainland. After the British possession of the island, command of the Continental forces around Aquidneck fell to General Joseph Spencer. I haven't said much about General Spencer. He had been a colonial militia officer for many years, with combat experience in the French and Indian War, as well as earlier conflicts. He was an outspoken patriot in the years leading up to the Revolution and an active member of the colonial government. Now remember, Connecticut as a colony had an elected governor, so from early on, Connecticut officials were all on board with the Patriot cause. By the time war broke out, the 60-year-old Spencer was a general in the Connecticut militia. He led a group of Connecticut militiamen to the Siege of Boston days after Lexington and Concord. When the Continental Congress took control of the army in July 1775, they made Israel Putnam the Major General from Connecticut and granted Spencer a commission as brigadier. Spencer had been Putnam's superior in the Connecticut army, so Spencer was understandably miffed with this reversal. He ended up returning to Connecticut without even speaking to the new commander, George Washington. Eventually, his friends convinced him to return and accept the position as a brigadier in the New Continental Army. Spencer rode back to Boston and served for the remainder of the siege, then moving with the rest of the army to New York in the summer of 1776. In August of that year, Congress promoted him, along with three others, to Major General. Despite this promotion, Washington never seemed to rely on General Spencer for anything important. He did not trust him with an independent command or even a critical leadership role during the New York campaign. By the end of the year, Spencer did finally get the independent command in Providence. After the British captured Newport, Spencer had the responsibility of contesting their control of Rhode Island. General Spencer did, well, almost nothing for nearly a year. He did not have many Continentals under his command He could have made use of New England militia to do something, but he apparently did not. After nearly a year of occupation in September of 1777, Spencer planned an amphibious assault on Aquidneck Island. The soldiers boarded their ships and prepared to cross over to the island, when at the last minute Spencer called off the assault. Spencer believed that the British had found out about the supposedly surprise attack and were prepared to challenge the amphibious assault on the beaches. He made the decision that the attack was an unacceptable risk, called it off, and stood down the army. The Continental Congress found this last-minute cancellation to be unacceptable and censored the general. Spencer called for a court of inquiry and was eventually exonerated but the general, now in his 60s, had had enough of all this and resigned his commission over the incident. This was happening over the winter of 1777-78, while Washington was at Valley Forge, fighting for his own position during the Conway Cabal. Spencer's fight with Congress was taking place while Washington was fighting for his own position. So, Washington, with the consent of Congress, sent General John Sullivan to command the Continental troops in Rhode Island, while Spencer tried to clear his name in York. His loss of command may have been why Spencer submitted his resignation that spring. Sullivan, as the new commander, had his own issues. Congress was still not terribly excited about Sullivan's performance at the Battle of Brandywine. Sullivan had just survived his own court-martial over that and other issues. Washington, however, still had confidence in Sullivan and recommended this independent command in, well, at least a less critical theater to see what Sullivan could do. The new commander had the same lack of manpower that the old one had. Sullivan took command in the spring of 1778 and was still getting a feel for the situation. One positive note for the Patriots was that the bulk of the British Navy around Aquidneck Island left in March and headed for Philadelphia. That left the British camp around Newport more vulnerable to attack. At the beginning of May, Sullivan reported to Washington that the British had about 3,600 soldiers on Aquidneck Island. This was almost certainly an overestimate, perhaps nearly double the actual amount. But based on Sullivan's estimate, he did not think he had anywhere near the manpower necessary to take any offensive actions against Aquidneck Island. Sullivan nevertheless began amassing supplies nearby so that he would be prepared for an opportunity to attack Newport if one arose. The Continentals stored a fleet of small boats as well as ammunition and other supplies in and around Warren Road Island, about ten miles north of Aquidneck Island. The British commander, General Pigot. Received intelligence about the American stockpiles from local Loyalist spies. He ordered a raid to destroy whatever the Americans were planning. On the night of May 24, 1778, a detachment of five hundred British and Hessian soldiers, under the command of Lieutenant Colonel James Campbell, climbed into a fleet of whaleboats. The soldiers rowed several miles north through the water to the mainland during the night. By the next morning, the soldiers were ashore and ready to march. Campbell divided his soldiers into two groups. One group marched along the bank of the Kikamuit River on a search-and-destroy mission. The soldiers found a small fleet of about 70 boats stored by the Continentals, and they burned or otherwise destroyed them. They also found a larger sloop, which they tried to destroy, but which was later repaired and recovered. The soldiers also located and destroyed other stored military supplies as well as a corn mill. The other detachment moved overland directly to the town of Warren, expecting to find local resistance from the militia. The Rhode Island militia, there under the command of Colonel Archibald Clary, had about 300 soldiers assembled to challenge the raiding party. Since the British had divided their force, The Americans may have slightly outnumbered the British. Colonel Clary, however, listened to the rumors that the force was much larger. His soldiers retreated from town before the British even arrived. Unopposed, the British set fire to the town's powder magazine. The ensuing explosion destroyed six nearby houses, as well as the town's meeting house. The British also found and destroyed five field cannons abandoned by the local militia. Having completed their work, the force turned around and marched back to the south toward Bristol, joining up with the other half of the raiding party. Around the same time, a British naval vessel also managed to surprise an American row galley, the Spitfire. The British captured the vessel, along with the crew of about 16 men, and took it back to Aquidneck Island. Further to the north, in Providence, Continental Colonel William Barton got word of the British raid. This was the same Colonel Barton who had led the raid a year earlier to kidnap British General Richard Prescott. Following that successful raid, the Continental Army had commissioned the Connecticut Militia Colonel Barton as a colonel in the Continental Army, but they didn't give him any specific command. Barton assembled about 200 local militia. As they marched from Providence toward Warren, they encountered the other 300 retreating Connecticut militia under Colonel Clary. They turned that group around and marched the combined force of over 500 militia toward the British raiding party. General Sullivan also received word of the British raid, but was farther away and taking a larger time to organize a larger force, and that force never reached the battle before the British departed. The American advance under Colonels Barton and Clary, however, caught up with the British, leading to light skirmishing. The militia did not seem to be terribly aggressive in engaging with the British, and the British were focused mostly on pulling back to their ships before a larger group of Americans arrived. Most of the fighting, therefore, was from a distance, resulting in almost no casualties on either side. Colonel Barton struggled to encourage the men forward, putting himself out in front of the advancing Americans. The British shot and wounded Barton in the leg, which seemed to end any serious attempt to engage with the British any further. Barton continued to try to rally the soldiers, even while wounded, but could not convince them to exalt the British in any aggressive way. When the British returned to Bristol, they went on a rampage, burning a church and 22 houses and looting others. They also took 69 civilian prisoners. They were able to board their whaleboats without interference. General Piggott had deployed two larger ships with cannons to provide cover, and this kept the militia at a safe distance. The raiding party reboarded their whaleboats and was back in Aquidneck Island by the evening. Nearly a week later, the British deployed another raiding party. On the night of May 30th, Major Edmund Ear who had been a part of the May 25th raid on Warren, took a hundred soldiers across the bay once again aboard two ships. This time, the raiders moved up the Taunton River just across the border into Massachusetts. The group landed near Freetown, once again looking to destroy Patriot resources. In this case, the main target appeared to be a sawmill that was producing lumber for the Patriots, mostly for making boats. The raiding party destroyed the sawmill and about 15,000 feet of lumber. They also burned a gristmill, at least one house, and nine boats that they happened to come across. Once again the local militia was caught off guard. They managed to assemble about 25 men under the command of Captain Joseph Durfee, who had served in the Continental Army. The militia confronted the British raiding party but did not have the numbers to hold them back. The British chased the militia for a short ways. The militia eventually crossed a bridge and took a defensive position on the far side of the bridge behind a stone wall. The British attackers attempted to storm the bridge but were unable to dislodge the militia from behind the stone wall. The Two sides instead just fired at each other from across the river for about 90 minutes. With concern that more militia reinforcements might arrive soon, Major Ears pulled back, and began marching the British back to their boats. Along the way, they burned at least one more house and took a civilian hostage. The American militia pursued them with a harassing fire, but always keeping a distance. The British jumped aboard their boats and rowed back out to the main ships, all the while taking fire from the shore. During the initial British landing, one of the two British ships that had brought the men there had run aground on a sandbar. Sailors were still working to free it as the raiding party returned. As the British struggled to free the ship, which was, by the way, named the Pigot after the commander, the Americans managed to bring an artillery battery to the shore. They opened fire on the pigot and the ships that were assisting her. The British, who had taken a few casualties ashore while skirmishing with the militia, took a few more killed and wounded from the shore battery. Eventually, though, they managed to free the pigot and sailed back to Aquidneck, but not before the ship had suffered some serious damage. The Americans did not report any casualties beyond the one elderly man who was taken hostage by the British, and several days later the British freed him and he returned home. Collectively, these raids became known as the Mount Hope Bay Raids. Colonel Barton's battle injury proved severe enough to prevent him from returning to active duty with the Continental Army. Even so, he used the raids as a rallying call to convince more militia to protect the coasts from future raids. However, it does not appear that the militia heeded the call to turn out in any great numbers. They did, however, respond to payments to rebuild all the boats that were destroyed and to cut more lumber to build them. Warren also established a night coastal watch and built some more robust coastal defenses. Over the next few months, the Americans rebuilt the fleet of small boats in order to prepare for another attempt to take back Aquidneck Island. But what really got the locals motivated was when the French fleet arrived a little over two months later. That allowed General Sullivan to collect a militia army of over 10,000 men ready to storm Aquidneck Island with the cooperation of the French. That battle will have to be the topic of a future episode. Meanwhile, next week we return to Philadelphia, where the British Carlisle Peace Commission attempts to settle this little rebellion once and for all.
0: Podcasters like Mike never know who will be inspired by their message. I'm Tracy Lawson, an author and historian. I once heard a podcaster comment, We rarely see history from a woman's point of view, and decided, Hey, I'm a writer. I should do something about that. So I did. My novel, Answering Liberty's Call Anna Stone's Daring Ride to Valley Forge, is based on a true story about my sixth great grandmother and has been called a grand and rollicking revolutionary adventure. While on a solo horseback journey to Valley Forge with supplies for her soldier husband, Anna takes on the responsibility of delivering an urgent message to General Washington. But it's not long before a mysterious man is hot on her trail and trying to steal the letter. Can Anna outwit him and make it safely to the picket line? A version of Anna's story for elementary school kids called Revolutionary Anna is the first book in my Liberty Bells series for young readers. Liberty Bells books feature female patriots who advanced the cause of liberty and they're a great way to get kids hyped up about America 250 which is just around the corner. My books are available in print and ebook on Amazon. For listeners of the American Revolution podcast, I'm offering 15% off personalized signed copies of books ordered through my website tracylawsonbooks.com. That's t r a c y l a w s o n books.com. Use
1: the promo code AMREVPODCAST. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. My continuing thanks to Trey Nance, George Davis, and Lewis White for support of this podcast at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon. Thanks also to Kurt Avard for his support at the Robert Morris Circle level. Anybody can support the podcast for as little as two dollars a month, and believe me, every little bit helps. If you can spare at least ten dollars or more per month, I will send you a new magnet with a different flag from the American Revolution each month. My way of saying thank you for helping to support this show. This week, I went over the raids that British General Robert Pigot ordered against the rebel forces surrounding Aquidneck Island, and. I've been told numerous times that I've been mispronouncing Aquidneck, "Equidneck," Island. I probably said it several different times in the main episode today. For that, I apologize. Again, that's one of those words that I've always read for years, but never actually heard pronounced until recently. And while I'm at it, I, in some earlier episodes, mispronounced General Robert Piggott's last name as Pigot, which is the French pronunciation since the family's been living in Britain for several generations, it's become Piggott, and I should have known that. So, sorry for that. Now, the command at Newport on Equidnick Island was Piggott's first real independent command. Piggott was already in his mid-50s when the revolution began, and at that time he was only lieutenant colonel. He made full colonel a few months after Bunker Hill. Around the same time, he became a brigadier general in America. Now, that's in America is one of those informal ranks that the British were so fond of. Essentially, he acted with the responsibilities of a brigadier while serving in America, but if he ever went to another command, he would have reverted back to being a regular colonel. It was the way of giving a better command to an officer while the army needed him there, but not committing to keeping him at that higher rank and pay after the need went away. The two years... After Pigot arrived in America, he was commissioned with the permanent rank of Major General. Other than his informal rank in America, I can't find any record of him being promoted to brigadier in between. So jumping from colonel to major general, which is the equivalent of a two star general in the modern army, is a pretty big jump. There may have possibly been some interim promotion there, again the records are hard to find. But even if there was moving from lieutenant colonel in late 1775 to major general in early 1777, less than two years, is pretty impressive. Add to that the fact that Piggott didn't do anything particularly amazing in those two years to merit a huge jump. He didn't command and win a major battle or do anything even particularly of conspicuous service. The cynic in me wants to believe that the commission was the result of the death of his brother George, and the fact that Piggott became a baron. The upper echelon of the military and government liked to give leadership to men who had titles. The promotion may have also been an inducement to Piggott to remain in the army and not just retire to go back and enjoy his wealth and property back in England. But again, this is all speculation on my part. I don't know exactly what the motive was for promoting him at this particular time. Speaking of his brother George... That's a whole nother interesting story. George Piggott made a really massive fortune working for the East India Company in what is today the nation of India. British-controlled India was really a massive source of wealth, far more than America was ever worth. And it's, it's really hard to overstate just how much wealth Britain extracted from India over the years. Men who rose to leadership positions within the East India Company acquired some of the largest fortunes in the British Empire. And George Piggott is a perfect example of that. He made a massive fortune by the time he resigned his position as governor of Madras in 1763 and spent many years just simply enjoying his wealth back in England. Despite having more money than he could ever spend in a lifetime, George did decide to push his luck a little too far when he returned to Madras in 1775. There, he got into a huge fight with his fellow British leaders in the East India Company over the restoration of a local Indian leader. Both sides engaged in power plays that probably violated company rules and law. George's enemies ended up throwing him in a local prison, where he died in 1777. After George's death, the company exonerated Piggott and prosecuted the men who threw him in prison. George's massive wealth, though, passed to his three siblings, including Robert. It seems that Robert did return to England in early 1779 and seems to have ended his active military career. I can't really find much record about what he did after he left America. He was still in the army because he was promoted to lieutenant general, the equivalent of a three-star general today, a few years after he went home. Part of the fortune that Piggott inherited from his brother was the Piggott Diamond. This was a more than 47-carat diamond that George had acquired in India along with the rest of his fortune. At the time, it was the largest diamond in Britain. While impressive, there really isn't much one can do with such a large gem. Robert, along with his two siblings, owned the diamond, but really didn't do anything with it. After Robert's death, the diamond was sold in 1801. The sale had to take place through a lottery because no single individual was willing to pay what it was worth. It was estimated to be worth between 25 and 30,000 pounds, and even very wealthy people just didn't have that kind of money sitting around. So they had to get permission from Parliament to hold a lottery. They raised about 24,000 pounds sterling in the lottery, and somebody who bought a ticket for two guineas was the winner of the prize. Two guineas may not sound like a lot of money, but that's more than a common laborer would earn in a month. The winners of the diamond did not really know what to do with it either, and so they ended up selling it at a Christie's auction where it was snatched up for the bargain price of £9,500. Then the new owner didn't really know what to do with it either, He tried to sell it to Napoleon shortly after Napoleon became emperor of France, and that didn't work out, but then the gem ended up remaining in France, the subject of several lawsuits. Finally, in the 1820s, it was sold to the leader of Egypt, who supposedly wanted to use it as a gift to the leader of the Ottoman Empire to get back in that leader's good graces. But we really don't know what happened to it after it left England. The Pigot diamond simply disappears from history, and its whereabouts are unknown today. Not really relevant to anything we were talking about today, I just thought it was an interesting side note on Piggott's life. So anyway, this week we took a closer look at occupied Newport, Rhode Island, under the command of General Piggott. And if you want to read more, this week's book recommendation is A Dependent People, Newport, Rhode Island in the Revolutionary Era by Elaine F. Crane. This is more of a general book about Newport during this era. It's a relatively short book, under 200 pages, published in 1995. Its main premise is that 18th century Newport desperately needed ocean trade, which essentially left them vulnerable to the British. It's an interesting background on the era. Crane has written a number of other books, but not really related to the Revolution. But, as I said, if you want to read more about Newport during this era you may want to get a dependent people. My online recommendation this week is called Hearts and Minds, The Political and Military Effectiveness of the Rhode Island Militia in the American Revolution. This is a military examination of the Rhode Island Militia during this era. It was written in 1992, but as an unclassified Department of Defense document, it is copyright-free and available on archive.org. It's nearly 200 pages and looks at the successes and failures in the attempts to use the Rhode Island militia in larger operations. It's an interesting read, especially if you're into military strategy. You can search for Hearts and Minds on archive.org or simply use the direct link on my website or on my blog. Go to www.amrevpodcast.com for more details. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.